Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Story Blender. I'm Stephen James, and this is where great storytellers share the secrets to great storytelling. has worked as a spoken word performance artist for many years, fusing music, poetry, and an intoxicating gift for, poetry, or for storytelling. Minton Sparks paints word pictures of the rural South that put you square in the middle of the people and the places she knows like the back of her hand. Sparks is a wildly original poet, performance artist, novelist, teacher, and essayist born in a college town and raised among her southern family in and around Arkansas. Her appearances range from the prestigious Jonesboro National Storytelling Festival all the way to the Grand Ole Opry in Nashville and the American Songbook Series at the Lincoln Center in New York City. In addition to writing and performing, Sparks teaches a writing and performance workshop, Create Your Story, at universities and professional organizations across the country. Minton, welcome, and thanks for joining me. Yeah, thank you for having me. Now, there are lots of different ways to describe your unique kind of distinctive style of being a spoken word performance artist. I know you were at the National Storytelling Festival last year. I really enjoyed watching you and seeing your your presentations. How do you typically, do you call yourself a storyteller, um, a poet, a performance artist? What's your preferred kind of way of referring to your, your yeah, style? Yeah, it's always difficult to come up with a title. I think the last time we were like a speaker, songwriter, but I think I'm a performance artist, you know, yeah. that's telling stories. So that's probably the best way to think about it. Now, when you develop your your stories for performance. I was curious because you have uh, you had at least at this um, event a um, musician with you, um, and then you had the poetry and the story and so on. What kind of comes first for you as you're developing new material? Is it kind of just a spark of an idea? Do you have in mind the ending and you build toward that, or what kind of? I was curious about your process. Yeah, I um, usually write in my car when I'm driving, so it's a strange process. I have little bits of paper all over my car, but I start with a story, and, um, you know, that's changed over time. I mean, I've been doing it forever now, so that, you know, it started with, uh, first record was mostly about my grandmother and her sisters, hmm. and then it sort of come up through, you know, up through the chron- chronological uh, era, I'm writing no- now about very different things than I was before then. But it always starts with a story or the poem, and then I, I have collaborators, musical collaborators. John Jackson is who uh, I've been collaborating with for probably 15 years, along with some other musicians. But um, then I take the piece, you know, after it's written to him and we talk about sort of what the tone, the emotional tone is, and then... okay kind of work together on that you know um your um your performances and your stories um i noticed that they kind of start in maybe one direction and then it kind of builds so that there's 
two, um, two levels of meaning toward the end. Um, so it was, you know, it wasn't just a story about growing up or your grandmother's or something like that, but usually there's kind of this poignant um, truth that's coming through within the presentation. Um, is that something that you purposely kind of try to do, or is it just the way that you naturally write? You know, I spend a lot of time after the first draft going back and back and back and asking the question, what is this about? You know, mm-hmm. so um, in anyone's life, and you can just tell the story, you know, it started here and it ended here. And then, you know, in reflecting upon it, it's usually about something bigger for me. I yeah. and I don't know if that, have, you know, I went to divinity school, I have training in... Um, I don't know, metaphor, just sort of metaphorically thinking, what is this about? And I spent, you know, some, I've taken 10 years to edit pieces before, you know, perform, performing them all the while, but then I don't figure out what it's really about. And when I do, then it's it's finished. That's fantastic. I like that. So your pieces actually do develop over time. Um, you don't tip, you, you, they're not always where you write it and then perform it exactly as, as you developed it. Never, never. I've always editing. I mean, the first draft is if it's got, you know, enough, um, for me, kind of enough of a powder keg emotionally. And then I'll go back to it, and it's in the going back process that the shape, you know, I find a shape or I find uh, mostly that question, like, what is this piece about? What's happening here? (laughs) For example, I remember, you know, I was remembering when my mom used to take us to these Tom Jones concerts, and... I was little, you know, like maybe nine years old, and you'd see, I don't know if you, I don't know your age, but Tom Jones, at his concerts, women used to, like, throw their panties up on stage. (laughs) And I was with my mom, and I was like, whoa. So at first I was just, you know, writing that story down because I thought it was a funny story, and then I got, you know, like, well, this is about something much bigger than this. And so that's where the piece went, you know, even though it just started out with a simple story. I have a friend who's a novelist, and he wrote his latest novel, sent it in, his um, agent loved it, his editor loved it, they sent it to a developmental editor, and then she said, I've read 90 pages, and she said, what is the point? And so he was like, wait a minute, I have to go back to the kind of the drawing board, but it sounds like that's a similar process for you. I mean, you're asking, okay, these events occurred, but what was the deeper truth, the deeper meaning, what was the point? Yeah, that's always it, and 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 they're not. Fin- I can't finish pieces. I mean, they're. Gr- I have some. I feel like I've written some pretty good stories, but I can't find the point of them, and so they're not really performance ready until that shows up. Yeah, that's really interesting. How did you get started with kind of your unique perspective? You mentioned that you went to divinity school. Was this always kind of an approach that you enjoyed, or was there like a moment where you turned the corner and said, you know what, this is really the authentic way for me to present stories? Yeah, you know, I have been, I'm a lifelong poet, so I, you know, since third grade, I was the poet laureate of my third grade with, you know, some little rhyme. But oh, that's I, fun. I went. I went through school and then I uh, I finished college and I was sending poems in all the time like every poet does and, you know, getting rejection slips. And I remember I got published in this one journal that I really liked, but it was called Lonzie's Fried Chicken. And I was thinking, you know, I'm, I'm spending my whole life, like my, my soul life on this 
pursuit. And, you know, I'm thinking, what if I get in the Paris Review? How many people actually read the Paris? You know, I mean, of course, they've got a lot of readers, but not, you know, it would still be an esoteric, sort of a small number of people. And so at the time I was um, doing that, I was taking guitar lessons from Rob Jackson and... My brother's also my brother's an actor and a director, and he said, "Why don't you come read some of those little poems you have in my one man show?" Because he needed twenty minutes; it was twenty minutes shy of a full show. Huh. And so I just took my guitar teacher with me, and you know, it was a fledged, really, really, you know, rudimentary attempt. But that's sort of how it started. I just wanted to have a wider audience because I was spending every bit of who I was on these pieces, and I was afraid they'd just never find any. And not make their way to anybody, and so with you know performing just opened it opened a lot of it opened my work to a lot more audiences, and that's sort of how you know I didn't consider myself a storyteller, but I was so thrilled when I got to be in storytelling festivals. Now, what would you say? Okay, so this is a little bit maybe hard question to answer, or maybe it's super simple because there is no difference, but what would you say distinguishes maybe a story from a simple poem? Are there structural differences for you in the way you approach it, or do you just say, no, look, all of mine, you know, develop into stories because of this reason or something like that? You know, I mean, there's the whole uh, narrative. Narrative poetry is always, you know, a narrative. I mean, it's a story anyway. And I don't, I don't know. I think it just so happens that most things I'm interested in have a story aspect to those. I don't know if that's answering the question, but okay, um, sure. yeah. Um, so a lot of people, when they talk about um, you know story and storytelling, they look at the idea of tension that there's a character who wants something um, and can't necessarily get it, and so he or she pursues it faces obstacles, you know, renegotiates where they're going, and and eventually comes to some sort of resolution or conclusion at the end. Um, As you're looking at your pieces, do you look for that moment to, like, the tension? Or um, or are you thinking more in terms of, like, the word artistry and so on? You know, I think that I'm just telling true stories for the most part. Uh-huh. And I think the tension's inherent. I wonder if what came first, the chicken or the egg on that, you know, yeah. because I didn't didn't even learn that device till later. You know, the characters need to want something and they need tension. But I just know in the true stories that I'm, because most of my stuff is based, you know, on my family and it's true, that just, that fa- that's there. It's sort of inherently there. It sounds... It sounds to me like this has always been kind of, you know, not just an important part of your life, but an important part of kind of your journey ever since third grade, the poetry and the stories and so on. And then what what was it that made you finally set the page down and say, look, I'm done reading my poetry. I'm actually going to perform it or present it, however. Yeah, that, you know, that happened with that show with my brother. I, uh, oh, okay. You know, that, that's when it happened. I mean, I had never performed it, and I, you know, just, and my grandmother had died recently, and she'd willed me these clothes, so I kind of got a costume from that, and 
it was it was so all so um, out of my comfort zone. You know, as a poet, I mean, not a person that's sort of historically a performer. Yeah. Um, you know, so that was that was how it happened. So yeah, it started in his show. His show was called Sermons from the Road, and um, I was a weird character that came up and performed her poetry. <laughs> um, I think on your website, when I was reading through some of your background, which is really fascinating, I think it's something like, her presentations are not sermons, even though she is <laughs> went to divinity school or something like that. Um, mm-hmm. what, what would you say distinguishes yours from maybe being message-driven or you know, didactic sermons and so on, are they more just to help people really think about big questions, or um, is there a poignancy that you're shooting for with your stories? Um, you know, I think everybody, I, I think what's interesting, or I always tell my students the way you can pull a listener up in your lap, you know, to tell them a story, is to make them feel something. So it's not okay. so much to make a po- you know some sort of point that changes their lives but you want to make them feel something because that's what's compelling you know if you, i think that's what we all you know in art you want to feel something by what you're seeing or hearing yeah that's great because a lot of different people that i've spoken with over the years whether they're novelists or actually screenwriters storytellers, comedians, a lot of them bring up what you just did, and that is an audience connecting with an audience on an emotional level. And it's not just enough to kind of go through the actions or exactly the specifics of here's what a story is and so on, but but to actually reach people on that emotional level. Yeah. Yeah, and that's, you know, who nobody comes back unless they felt something. I, I did a run at this little theater in New York for three weeks, and I remember the same woman. She would come back every night, and she was like, I mean, I'm an emotional wreck every night. How about <laughs> and that? I kind of felt bad for her. But, I mean, she must have been processing through something, you know. Yeah. But it's just, um, you know, and I, I, I remember one woman one time at Jonesboro going, don't do that to us. <laughs> I mean, just I think it just touched, you know, it just touched some feeling that yeah. had not had not made it to the surface. But I think that's what art does. I think so too, and I think that you know, if people are like, "Well, how do you justify art or storytelling and and all of this or whatever?" I think it's a it's a big part of what makes us human with connecting with people and and those feelings and questions and processing stuff that happens through community, which can be developed through story. Yeah, exactly. And there's, yeah, that whatever the, I mean, I love that thought. Um, We were uh, doing a festival in Ireland. I remember one time and just, you know, I, I think the festival organizers at first were like, well, this translate, you know, sort of, rural southern stories, but I mean, just every single time, you know, I mean, every single time there's there's a universality to a story that, that connects emotionally with people. It doesn't matter where it happened. Yeah, that's, um, that's so true. And uh, I did some uh, teaching on writing, uh, fiction writing up in um, Northern Ireland, and I remember that at night, and maybe this is the same for you, but like at night there were all these pubs in the little town that we were in, and uh, so we'd go to the pub and they would have people sing and tell stories, and so, um, you know, that 
those people just kind of show up and and actually uh, just start playing music and and then so they would say, okay, anybody want to tell a story? And so people would tell a story and then someone would play another song and it would go on for hours and hours. And I remember going and they're like, do you want to tell a story? And I'm thinking, when am I going to have the chance again to tell a story at a small pub in Restrever, um, you know, Northern Ireland? I'm like, of course I want to tell a story. And then I was like, um, yeah. what story do I tell? Like, what? <laughs> and it's almost expected. I mean, it's part of the culture. I love that. You know, you're kind yeah. of expected to do something after dinner, like you sing for your supper or something. Yeah, um, that's great. Yeah, that was, you know, that was, that experience. Um, and also, I felt like people came for bread more than entertainment. Hmm. Um, that was in a particular, and I loved that. Like, you, when people are that open-hearted to what your story is, you know, and, and you are to theirs, that that just creates a completely different kind of community. Have you found over the years that some poems or stories are better read silently and some are better performed? Or do you find that most of them really have an or- oral um I guess, orality about them, that they, they really work best when they're read aloud or spoken aloud. Yeah. Well, and, you know, I know historically there's that thing that if a poem doesn't work on the page, then it's not a good... I mean, I got that a lot when hmm. I first started. You know, a good poem will just work on the page, and it probably needs to be, just be read silently. And But for, you know... For my money, I mean, I, I go hear poets as much as I can, and 100%, I like to hear the, I mean, of course, a lot of poets are dead, and you're, I'm reading their work as well, but to be able to be in the presence of someone that yeah. who wrote the poem, and, and even any any sort of reading, to me, feels like a performance of sorts, because you're you're experiencing the person. There they are. They're standing before you, and you're the audience, or, you know, vice versa, and that. To me, um, that's what my school is based on. Like, there is something extra you get when you're willing to, you know, show up embodied and mm-hmm. and either give a reading or, and even better, have it memorized by heart. Because there's just there's a power to that that you know it translates that you really. I mean, it's hard to even speak about that. You, and you probably know that as well. You know, to be in the room with someone. Yes, yeah, so when you memorize your stories um, and then you continue to maybe edit and change them, is that difficult, um, you know, as far as your presentations and performances, or is it just kind of the natural progression as you move along? Um, you know, I feel like memorizing, if I've written something, it's not so hard because I've gone over and over and over it, you know. Okay, sure. I've written that line 10 or 15 times. Um really hard for me to memorize other people's, uh, you know, work. But they're pretty easy to memorize my own, and that's probably just because I wrote it. But that, you know, uh, I work with my brother a lot. He's my director, and he, after it's memorized, he'll, he'll, he's got a lot of wonderful ways to put it, help me put it in my body. Oh, interesting. So, you know, I can go to my foot and find a line that I used to forget or go to my elbow and find, you know, so it's just in my body. That's really cool that you have, you know, someone close to you that can help direct you. I don't know that a lot of, you know, storytellers um, really have that, uh, necessarily have that process that, that they're able to go through. Yeah, I think that's, that is different. And I kind of can't, I mean, you know, I came from clubs. So I just came into the storytelling world sort of yeah. a different way. I was playing night, you know, not night, but music clubs. <laughs> 
So, yeah, it's yeah. it's my brother has been invaluable and continues to be. I think that that's really helpful. You know, I have a friend who's a storyteller and a comedian, um, Bob Stromberg, and he has a director that he works with as well. Um, and in the kind of the Jonesboro storytelling field, it's just it doesn't seem like it's as commonly used. Um, but having someone that you trust actually listen, maybe give you some feedback and notes, I feel like that's very that could be very positive. Yeah, I mean, it has been for me. You know, it yeah. has been for me. And I came, I mean, I was, a, I was teaching school. I mean, it's just the, the leap from, you know, whatever one is doing to, to being in front of people on a stage. I don't know. I really admire people. I mean, all sorts of storytelling styles. You know, yeah. I love to hear. I mean, there's so many good styles. But mine is more out of sort of one-woman show theater mm-hmm. stuff. Now, when you do your um, your presentation workshops and writing and performance workshops on creating stories, what are some of the things that you really find um, helpful for kind of for some of your students as far as like words of advice, or maybe what kind of fears do you find propping up over and over again that might get in the way of people sharing their stories? Well, um, in my workshops, I. I was a therapist for years, and they're not therapy workshops, but there's a super tight container built before people even start to write their stories. I mean, it's very intentional, and it's uh, and so that fear that people have usually is about more being, you know, oh, I didn't write something amazing. And so in my workshops, we, we just take that off the table. Like, nobody's really going to have a first draft here that's going to blow anybody else away. I mean, almost as a goal, it's just to settle into the space um, with other people and allow whatever wants to come through to come through. So what I see, I mean, I see people changing their lives by um, sitting with and being willing to write their story in a community and then Mm. sharing it with the community. So there's sort of a, I mean, there's always a a soulful aspect to that, and I think we, we just hold that as part and parcel of what we're doing. And uh, I think, you know, the confidence that one has when they're, when they're in that kind of container is very different because th- there's not going to be any judgment about was this good or was, you know, good is kind of off the table. It's just <laughs> what wants to come through. <laughs> That's so, there is so much pressure, isn't there? Uh, I think, yeah. Um, to be, to impress and to be good or something like that. Um yeah. There's this um, there's this activity that I've sometimes done in writing workshops and storytelling workshops. You know, it's this old fortunately unfortunately story that you make up on the spot where you start telling a story and then someone will you'll say unfortunately and you take an idea from the audience of a bad thing that could happen, insert it, and then you know, but, but but fortunately then you take a good thing that that the audience suggests and you weave it into the story and so. Anyway, I've done this with, like, kindergarten rooms. And as soon as you say, unfortunately, what was something bad that might happen? I mean, every single kid has their hand raised. And then you say, well, fortunately, what's something nice that might have happened? Every kid has their hand raised. But if you do it with adults, they won't say anything. They'll sit there and stare at you. And you'll say, well, unfortunately, what's a bad thing that could happen? And they'll just... Because you probably know why. They're afraid that their idea will sound stupid or that they'll right. look dumb or that it won't be good enough 
or that it won't be as funny as someone else's idea, or all of those things get in the way so often. It's just fascinating that, to me, children don't have that so much, that fear that's ingrained over time. Right. Somebody, I I think most students I have at some point, I mean, even myself, probably you can't find a person unless you've just been a virtuoso from birth, but, you know, has had some teacher or some experience where they were shot down when they, because it's such a risk to create something or throw anything out. And so that, I just, I mean, so aware that everyone's wearing that. And so when you take away, let's, you know, like it's almost a goal to not be good. <laughs> it just, it, it, you know, you know, and then it, then the people get good across the weekend. But you know, right at first, like we don't even want to be good. We just want to do something. You know, um, yeah. I think that's interesting. And and children are different. They haven't been, haven't had. I mean, most you know, if they're early enough, they hadn't had that experience yet. One thing you mentioned a minute ago was risk, and all art does have some risk to it. I mean. Um, you may know this quote better than I do, but I think um, Robert Frost once said, I've never started a poem whose end I knew writing poetry is discovery. And mm-hmm. I don't know if it's exact quote, but, but you know, his idea is that he didn't start knowing the end of the poem whenever he began it, but as he wrote it, sort of risking into that space of, I don't know what will happen, that began to emerge to him. Um, Do you find that true in your case as well? Yeah. I mean, it's like being alive. You know, I think, I just, I see, especially in workshops, I usually, we sort of set a norm too, like writing is just another, it's just another language of being alive. So you see all these parallels, right? Just, I mean, I'm either going to stay home in one room and, and do the things I already know and be very habitual or take the risk to get out of the habit of who I am and see see what comes through and that's just life. I mean it's 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 sort of the way any you know, it's it's being alive versus not being alive in a way. Or or being in a trance versus being alive. And I think um it's just thrilling. I think it thrills people. My class yesterday morning we had eight people socially distanced on my driveway because we're kind of desperate for stuff. <laughs> And uh, just to watch the people who hadn't been before and to see, you know, and just the how elated they were, you know, to be received that way, to be witnessed, to have, you know, something out of the norm fall onto the page. That's just thrilling, all of it is. Do you find that sometimes when you're in your seminars and you're teaching that one idea that someone brings up becomes a springboard for the other students to actually say, oh, oh, that reminds me of the time when, you know, and and come up with stories of their own? Um, You know, definitely there becomes sort of a collective unconscious, especially if, you know, if it's for a weekend. Um, we have a feedback method where you can't really, you know, say, oh, that happened to me too. But, of course, uh, it, it it finds its way into the writing, you know, it, it subsequent writing. But, um, yeah, I, I think once you become a community, and I also think that there are some stories that only need to be told in a council of people, hmm. that you it's, it's um, there's something about sitting in council or sitting in a circle that can hold pretty much any sort of story. But even more so than one-on-one, you know, just telling a person the story one-on-one. And that sort of came from 
being a therapist for years, I just saw that I think so much more healing happens in uh, writing circles. In my experience, I mean, yeah. I've got one little experience. Then happens with some, you know sitting down with one person and telling them the the you know whatever happened. It just there's a magic and an alchemy that happens. And you know, in a story, you can you can use poetic license. It's like, no, nah, this happened, and then rewrite the ending. And so, <laughs> I just love that that healing aspect of it. One time, I was teaching a seminar and actually up in Alaska on writing. And this lady, after I talked about this idea that art is formed, that it's a risk, that we don't always know the ending and so on like this. Anyway, she came up to me and she said, I am an artist and I have painted 1,000 paintings in my lifetime. And before I started, I knew exactly what everyone would look like. And I'm like, she's arguing with me about the creative process Mm -hmm. and all this. And I was like, oh, okay, well, I mean, I was like, that's interesting. And then she said, and in every case, I've been wrong. So that was fascinating to me. Wow. Yeah, Yeah, that she as an artist began with a specific picture in mind, but by the end of the process, she found every time she was wrong. Um, Yeah. Is that, does that resonate with you at all as far as, you know, as you develop material? Say, I think I know what this is about. All of a sudden you develop and you're like, wait a minute, is is much different than I thought when I started. Yeah, every time. Hmm. Every time. If it's good. You know, if it's any good. I'm a painter too, and I uh, I love that process of having no idea, you know, where the painting's going. But it's similar in writing. And, and that's first draft stuff. You know, it's really about entering the circle of the non-ordinary and, you know, and, and just whatever comes out of that. I mean, who knows how I'm going to use it eventually, but just for generating, you know, generating, it just feels like having no idea is the best place to be. It's interesting. I think, I think it's true for so many art forms, you know, now that I'm starting to think about it, painting, I'm not a painter myself, but, Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, you know, when I write novels, I've never known how a novel will end when I've started it. And a lot of people look at me mm-hmm. strangely. I'm like, just, if I knew how it ended, it would make it kind of boring to spend six months yeah. writing it out, just filling in the blanks. It just does, doesn't sound as intriguing to me. Yeah. Do you find that... But my some- friend is always saying, like, we've got about ten minutes left. What do we want to do with it? And I want to do something brand new. Oh, you know, yeah. I haven't done before. So it's like, mm-hmm, Yeah. The clock's ticking. What are we going to do? Um, but, yeah, I love that. I'd, I need to read one of your novels. <laughs> we'll send you one. That'll be fine. Okay. Um, I'd love it. Yeah. So um, do you find that some of your material works for all ages, kids to adults to grandparents and so on, or do you have stuff targeted more for specific audiences that you present to? You know, I I don't think my stuff works really well with young children, and uh-huh. um, that's probably as far as festival work. I've gotten less festival work because I'm not, um, and I think it's because I didn't. St- I'm, I've opened myself to that, though. I'm thinking more along those lines, like how you know, developing things that works more for children. But my existing work is much more, you know, uh, adult. I mean, not yeah. adult like. No, but it's it just doesn't work as well. And and I think it's because 
I never intended to be writing for children. I, I was writing, you know, again, I was writing and I was in music clubs. So it's sort of a speaker songwriter stuff. And so, uh, but I'm, I'm fascinated. I love to hear stories that, that work with children. So I'm kind of almost like, you know, I've thought about writing a children's book. And, um, I think you can, you know, use profound themes. It's just finding the way of delivering it that's interesting as well to children. Yeah, I've written some stuff for children, and it's hard. Like, you think, oh, this will be easy, it's just for kids or whatever. But yeah. I've found that it's it's pretty tough because every word matters so much. And, man, if they're bored, they will let you know. And so yeah. we're, we're kind of more polite as adults, like, okay, well, no, that's interesting. Yeah, I'll, I'll sit through that. It's like <laughs> yeah. that during some of the story talks. Um, yeah, I... I think that's a whole different ball game. I love, you know, I read, I love read a lot of uh, youth literature just because I think some of the stories are so good. Like Wonder, remember that book that this movie was made out of? That was oh, my I think I books. have that on my shelf, actually. Yeah, yeah, that's such a great book. Um, but anyway, no, I, I wouldn't consider myself a children's storyteller. Yeah. Now, but you do have a new um, CD that's coming out, and I think it's even available for pre-order through your website. Tell us a little bit about that project. Yeah, this project is a new, um, sort of a new area for me. I got to do a couple of shows with a spoken word artist that just blew me away, Anise Mojgani. And after that tour, I found myself writing really, giving myself permission to write in a really different way. And this Hmm. piece that came out, which is called Where Humans End and Birds Begin, was directly, I wrote it the night after one of our shows we did together. And then that became the the, uh, main piece for the new record. And those, I I think I went in a new direction on this record, which is thrilling to me. You know, I I don't want to do the same thing over and over and over and over. And so I have, um, I had a different producer for the record, so we got to pull in just a lot of amazing, it's so fun to be making records in Nashville, because um, I always say I'm no competition to anybody, so people will just play on my records. I've had, (laughs) Ted Mose played on one of my records, Chris Bailey's played on one of my records, you know, these people, just because I'm just no competition, (laughs) because it's such a different approach. And so this record, same thing, I just got to have some amazing the drummer from Wilco played on it, you know, just odd, odd huh. approaches to the music. And it was really fun. So that is available on my website, which is just mintonsparks.com. Yeah, mintonsparks.com. And we'll do a formal, huh. yeah. And um, is it mainly one story, or is it a collection of stories kind of revolving around similar themes? It's a collection of stories. Not, I mean, my. I think my work... Sort of, it has you know, women's empowerment is usually in there somewhere, accidentally, not intentionally. Um, so I think there's a lot of that on this record, and I also did some songwriting. So I have, I think I have two song, three songs on this record. One I wrote with Amelia White, a really good songwriter in in Nashville, and uh, yeah. So this is different than the other ones because I have some songs on it, and um, but it, that particular song we we did a performance. In uh, at William Faulkner's house because they were oh, wow. a series one summer, and that was thrilling for me being a Southern writer and interested in Southern literature. And Amy Ray of the Indigo Girls was there, and just all these musicians. And um, 
I ended up finding a snake skin in the grass. And oh, I no, ha- that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, and I put it in my purse. And <laughs> so, anyway, we just have. And then, then you hear the story of William Faulkner's just unbelievably difficult uh, relationship with his wife. Mm. And anyway, so it's just, it's, they, they had such a wild story, and there's a piece on the record about that from that. And there's a snake skin in your purse. Yeah, and there's, I keep the snake skin in my purse. I got a, a buckeye, a snake skin. I've got. I just keep collecting things, and they're all in my purse. Which is the same purse that my grandmother willed me. Now, twenty years ago. Oh my goodness, that's great. Um, yeah. Now I know a lot of people when they hear the word poem or poetry, they think of high school, uh, you know, English class, wherever you're dissecting a poem and trying to say, oh, I think that the you know, the author meant this or that or whatever. And so sometimes people's eyes glaze over a little bit, but your poems aren't anything like that. They're really engaging. Like you said, they're story-based, have to do with life and then the meaning beneath the experience. How do you get past kind of that, I don't know, I don't know if it's prejudice or whatever it is that people kind of have toward poetry whenever you meant, whenever that's kind of brought up? Yeah, I've had lots of people come up and say, I hate poetry, and I liked that a lot. So, you know, and I think it's the way, I mean, I think it's changing because there's so many exciting contemporary poets. I mean, to go listen to poets today, I mean, I I go to the series of Vanderbilt and listen to people, and they're, you know, I just feel like they're so much more accessible. I think maybe back in the 80s, you know, we were just reading whatever, I mean, and they're amazing poems, but they were taught so boringly, you know, and uh, I think that history for people, and also, I mean, I don't know if you read The New Yorker, I do, sometimes I don't get the poems, you know, it's Mm. like, this is too obscure, I mean, I don't know enough references, I could if I dug in, you know, and I'm not saying all the poems, but, you know, there are poems that almost feel intentionally obscure, Yeah. uh, so that there's no way in. And so if there's no way in, why am I going to waste my my 10 minutes reading them? (laughs) No, that's, I mean, coming from you, that's really interesting because I love poetry and and there are books of poetry that I read. But sometimes I'll say, what? I have no clue. And if you need a degree to understand a poem, like a degree in literature or something, I'm like, clearly it's not reaching an audience. Or if it's just showing off to you, that doesn't really... You know, attract me yeah, so much. Yeah, obscure references that you're not going to know unless you've read this other poetry book. And it's like, I get that that's, you know, part of, you know, a history and it has its value. But just for a regular person who likes literature but is yeah. turned off by poetry, I always feel like that's really sad. Um, do you know the Dodge Poetry Festival? It, it's, uh, it happens every year in New Jersey, and we perform huh. there. And that, I think, if anybody went to that festival and they weren't turned on by poetry, it'd be, it'd be a surprise because they have got, you know, I mean, like Sharon Olds is there and Billy Collins is there and Nikki Finney's there. and I mean, they just have amazing, and, you know, it's packed out. You can't, a lot of times you can't get in the room where they're reading. Now, what was the name of that again, the Dodge Poetry Festival? Uh-huh. Dodge Poetry Festival. It's a festival. Huh. Interesting. For poetry. Yeah, that's fun. I think this year it's, it's going to be online, but it is, I think it's kind of a life-changing, and I think, and they're bringing in more and more, busing in more and more high school students to where they get to feel how exciting 
that it can be. You know, and part of that, I think, spoken word artists, I mean, that, that go about it very differently than I do. But Anis Mojgani is like, I'm a huge fan of his right now. And his work has just, I feel like, opened poetry up to a bunch of new people. Oh, that's fantastic. Also, Sonia Renee Taylor, you know, there's just a lot of people that are so good on their feet. Now, do you have any advice for people who might say, look, I have this idea, whether it could be a poem or a story or maybe a painting or whatever it is, but I just, I'm not creative. I'm not a poet. I'm not a storyteller. I'm not a writer, whatever. Um, Do you have any advice for people who are listening to say, you know, look, you can, you know, embark on, on this journey or words of advice for them or anything like that? Yeah, I mean, the perfect student for me is someone who has a yearning but thinks they don't have any talent mm. because the yearning is the, uh, you know, it's just like, oh, I'd, I'd love to do that, but I have no talent because it, it doesn't. What they find is all, if you write and you start a writing practice, all of a sudden something shows up that is beyond you through your writing, and then all of a sudden, you know, you're in a new space of living. And that's, it's just... So I think it's to be in a to to uh, be in a practice in a safe enough circle where you get to explore um, yeah. new n- new ways of writing and new ways of being. When I was um, when my kids were growing up, I would tell them bedtime stories, you know, and and then as they got older, they would say, "Oh, tell us a story, tell us a story," and. Um, Sometimes, even though I'm a storyteller and writer and so on, sometimes mm-hmm. I'd be like, oh, I can't come up with any good idea right now or something. Like, I would put that pressure mm-hmm. on myself. Even though I do this for a living, I would be like, well, it's not going to be good enough or something like that. Um, yeah. So I think that I don't. it's hard to step away from that, you know, that pressure as adults that we put on ourselves. Yeah, it is. We had this great conversation yesterday about received forms. You know how everybody's talking about received forms, but, like, what what am I comparing myself to versus what am I open to? So it's the comparing that as, you know, and I forget the quote about what that kills all creativity, comparing yourself to somebody, but it's almost like you have one life and you have, you have a, a unique way of listening and, uh, you know, to create something is sort of the highest joy. So why miss out on it? And so I I deeply believe that. Well, that's a great place to close up the idea of not missing out on the deep joys of being human. And I think that there's some poetry even just what you just said. Mm-hmm. So, Minton, thanks so Thank much you. for for being on the program today, for letting me pick your brain about stories and poetry and art. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate your time, and and we want people to check out your CDs and um, maybe if you have upcoming shows that um, that they could go and see you. I know right now things are crazy because of the coronavirus, but you'll be doing, you know, like you even mentioned, you're doing um, a workshop even now. So where's the best place for people to check out information about you, your products, and your performances? Yeah, everything is always on my website, which is just mintonsparks.com. And I know we're doing a festival, some online festivals. There's one in November with 
Debbie Thomason and Kevin Kling and some other people that'll be amazing. The Snake River Festival. Yeah, but those, all of, all of the dates should be on my website. It is, uh, you know, I'm doing some virtual workshops as well, so um, that's on my website too. Yeah, fantastic. Everybody, and I know the big, this is the thing I meant to. We we since COVID has happened, we have this growing community of creatives that's called the Sparks, and that's on my website. And people join, and then they can do writing workshops with levels. They get a painting from me. Um, there's, you know, so there's there, and they get a weekly update sort of video. So that is a way for people who are sort of feeling closed in in there, but they feel like they're they want creative community. The Sparks create. Uh, community has been just a lifeline for people, and that's on my website as well. How cool is that? That's awesome. So, so people can connect through your website. They just um, click on the the header or whatever about Sparks. Uh huh. The Sparks. That's the name the of the Sparks. community. Yeah, and they they join through that, and then they they get a welcome letter, and then they're in, and we start doing stuff together. Excellent. Well, that's great. We hope yeah. we hope our listeners will check that out. And I want to thank everyone for tuning in for listening. Uh, for more information about our other guests and to check out our other podcasts or broadcasts, search for us on iTunes or Spotify or now Amazon Prime and uh, or click to thestoryblender.com. Don't forget to like us and subscribe to receive our weekly podcasts on Friday evenings. And folks, always remember... The art of the story is all in the blend. Take care, everyone. We'll see you next time.